Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today. This series is entitled, Glorious Disruption, When Jesus Shows Up and Turns Everyone's World Upside Down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around, and maybe even upside down, because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying for our joy and amazement in Christ. Let's worship together. Well, um, it is uh, great just to sing, and uh, I was worshiping this morning, and I, uh, I get the advantage of just being in the Word of God that we're going to study all week long, and thinking through and imagining what it was like for Elizabeth and Mary to celebrate this great news that had come to them from Gabriel. And I could really imagine this morning um, Mary singing with us. It it struck me, partly um, when Ellie was singing, introduced the one song there and just had the female solo there. But you realize as we've gone through that section, that's a song. Um, that um, Mary is singing in that section of Scripture. And so I, I think of there is a day coming where we will sing with Mary and Elizabeth. Isn't that a great thought? That one day these ones who have heard the voice of God, uh, the angel Gabriel, the announcement, who have seen firsthand will stand beside us and will sing of the salvation of our God. And this morning, I hope that as we spend a little time in the Word and in the Gospel of Luke, what will happen for you is that you will more than enter in intellectually to the content of the text, but that you will be moved powerfully by the God who inspired it, who sent His angel to announce it, who came in flesh to deliver it. Isn't that great news? We're going to take communion soon. And so even as we're coming towards communion and you're hearing the Word of God, would you invite God to speak into your heart today? And I I recognize even as we're coming into worship, you know, um, as we are singing and praying and listening and struggling and rejoicing and all the elements that go on, that one one of the things the Lord wants for you today is that none of you would leave here today not thinking, not knowing, not being assured that our God in heaven sees you. This is not a a theoretical event. This is not a conceptual reality as we gather to worship, but you have come as the people of God, as uh, blood-bought sinners, redeemed, adopted into His family. You have come here today and you need to know, gathered with God's people, that God is in our midst. So whether you're like Chris and it's your birthday today, um, whether you're Laurel and you're 16, and I thought you were 17 or 18, but you've turned 16, um, whether or not you're Russ and Noah, and Faith is having her surgery this week, that he knows, that he sees. And we can sing, not because we're talking theoretically, but because God has spoken so we would sing with the same hope of Mary. That we would walk through this week with a great sense of His presence. 
So we get in this text of Scripture to see two women, two anonymous women. We get a, a picture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of two women rejoicing together, ecstatically rejoicing together. Isn't that great? And uh, you and I are meant to read this on Luke's trajectory of the great hope of the entrance of the Messiah into the world so that in the power of the Holy Spirit, all the nations would come to him. And here are two women who are marveling that this work of God began in the middle of nowhere with a group of nobodies. And Luke's purpose is to show us that the rollout of the kingdom of God and the effect of the kingdom of God for time and eternity would be God exalting the humble and bringing down the proud. And that comes up in what we've been singing today and in this song that is sung by Mary. And so here's how Luke begins. Uh, I want you to see, we just sang it. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I love that text of Scripture. And I want to say to you this morning as we think about this text of Scripture, that for you, as you're here today, would you pray? We're talking about this glorious disruption where God comes and disrupts our lives through the gospel of His Son. Would you pray that God would disrupt your despair? Would He disrupt your misery? We've been praying for different things to be disrupted today. But as we come to the table today, I want you to ask the Lord, come by the power of the Spirit, use Elizabeth, use Mary, and, and, and remind me that the mercy that you announce to them, you announce to me today. The mercy you announce to them. Listen to Luke 1.50. This is what Mary says, and we'll pick up on and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear Him from where? Generation to generation. This is the rollout. Generation to generation. God's mercy. Generation to generation. God's mercy being rolled out. And I want you to receive in this generation the mercy of God. And you know, one of the things that we can believe is that every generation has it harder. And I, I, I think that, you know, we live in a culture where it's tough to be a young person. Uh, the shift of the last couple of years, the, the disconnect of the last couple of years has been hard. The technology, the social media has made life difficult. A couple of years ago, Time Magazine ran an article written by Susanna Schrobsdorf called Anxiety, Depression, and the Modern Adolescent, Why the Kids Are Not Alright. And this is what she writes, they are the post 9-11 generation raised in an era of economic and national insecurity. They have never known a time when terrorism and school shootings weren't the norm. We just had another school shooting this week in America. They grew up watching their parents weather a severe recession. Perhaps most important, they hit puberty at a time when technology and social media were transforming society. Janice Whitlock 
of the Cornell Research on Self-Injury and Recovery said, if you wanted to create an environment to churn out really angsty people, we've done it. Like that word. Not angry people, angsty people. We live in a culture of angsty. She says, sure, parental micromanaging can be a factor, as can school stress. But Whitlock doesn't think they're the main drivers of this epidemic. It's that they're in a cauldron of stimulus they can't get away from and don't want to get away from or don't know how to get away from them. And so Susanna Schrobstorff writes, in my dozens of conversations with teens, parents, clinicians, and school counselors across the country, there was a pervasive sense that being a teenager today is a draining full-time job that includes schoolwork, managing a social media identity, fretting about your career, climate change, sexism, racism, you name it. Every fight or slight is documented online for hours or days after the incident, and it's exhausting. Isn't it exhausting to live in this culture? It says, this is, this is a quote from a student named Faith Ann, we're the first generation that cannot escape our problems at all. We're like volcanoes. We're getting the constant pressure from our phones, from our relationships, and from the way things are today. That's the culture. That's the young people that are growing up. And I say this for a couple of reasons, because we're about to listen to a teenager. Mary's a teenager. We need to hear this. I also want to tell you this, that that perception is not real. Not that it isn't hard. It's the perception that it's especially hard for us as opposed to previous generations. You and I don't understand the Gospel of Luke or the Bible properly if we don't understand what it's, to be, what it's like to be a poor young woman in Israel at this time. It was not easy. Mary will make a trip to go see Elizabeth, and if you read through the Gospel of Luke, you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? Traveling was not safe. And, and it was days for her to get there. It wasn't just a quick trip on a bus. And yet she makes this journey. And, and many times we forget that if you go to most of the world today, being a young woman in the two-thirds in the 1040 window is, a, is one of great abuse, great danger, great vulnerability, often what many of us have never imagined. Yeah, we have our, our stress and our difficulty, but you and I need to realize that here is a teenage girl Yes, she doesn't have social media, but thank God she had the Word of God. And what happens with Mary here in this text of Scripture is that the Word of God that has been richly placed within her explodes out in praise as the angel Gabriel speaks to her. And it's the Word of God that holds her. And I want to say to you as parents, the best thing you can do in this culture is richly saturate your children with the Word of God. Give them the language. Give them the tools that the Holy Spirit might speak to them when the lie of the world comes and says, you are without hope. There is no answer that we're going to hell in a handbasket that everything around us tells us that there's no hope economically there's no hope politically there's no hope racially there's no hope sexually right there's no hope that's what you're told all the time my dear friends the answer to the gospel is there's a god of hope who has come into the world to deliver hope and two women in this text of scripture 
burst forth. He's come. He's arrived. And I, and I, I want to say this because it's not just it's not just young women, it's old folks. There's just this nagging, aching, broken sense in our culture that we're, we're, we're at a place of, of despair. Church, do you know who we are? <laughs> do you know what he's done? Do you know what we have? Do you not understand that we of all people have hope? And, and, and it's good on a Sunday to come to worship and have a couple of women from 2,000 years ago just flip out with joy. Because I don't know about you, but I need a little joy from the Holy Spirit today. I need a little reminder in the gospel that God is for me and not against me. And this is what's going on. Centuries of decay. Centuries of, of um, idolatry. Centuries of silence from God is broken in this moment. And my soul, my soul magnifies. You know what's going on there? This is a joy breakthrough. The Holy Spirit revealing to her that God has not forgot His promises and God will never forget His people. And so through the ages, people have been overwhelmed by the sense of evil, the pervasiveness of injustice. Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out his evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Stop twittering. Oh no, that's not what it says. Sorry. Good. <laughs> Fret not yourself. It only leads to evil. For the evil doers will be cut off. But those who will wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. You'll look for his place, but it will not be there. But the meek, got this? The meek will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is why the Gospel of Luke begins with unmitigated joy. God has come. He's entered the world to bring what man has not been able to do. So we have sung one song, <laughs> Christmas song. We're going to be singing Christmas till. Don't worry, I've already been to the mall or in Costco. They already have Christmas decorations up, so might as well. I always want to sing early anyway to the annoyance of my family. But O Holy Night has this line, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's how Luke is beginning. Two women rejoice because the palpable sense of of sorrow and misery, of living in a sin-oppressed world is being by, shattered by a God who has come to put things right in Christ. God has seen our misery and responded with what? Mercy. That's what Mary's singing about. The mercy of God. Tom Schreiner says that Luke in Luke and Acts has this as its theme and agenda. Ultimately, the wicked will de be defeated and the righteous will triumph. 
for the Lord's kingdom will come in its fullness in Jesus Christ's return. Jesus Christ's return. Goodness will finally triumph. The evil will be judged and he shall reign. The Lord will reign how long? Forever. So that's the dominant theme of Luke. The Lord has come to establish his kingdom and he will reign forever. And we sang this morning or read this morning in the scriptures that he will come and judge with equity. Do you know what that that means? Do you know what that means? That's not talking about one moment of judgment. That's talking about a people who have lived under corrupt leaders Unjust rulers having a king who will rule in righteousness forever. So young people, if you keep believing the news and the media and the voices which say the economy and the environment and, and, the, and the culture and racism and all of that is ultimately going to win the story, you've got to understand this. He is coming and he will judge the world and he will reign with equity. Justice is coming. Wouldn't it be great to live in that world? He's begun to do that in and through the church. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke quotes Jesus as he picks up the scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah in Luke 4, 17-19. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. Picture this with me. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Does that sound intentional to you? Let me read this to you. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor, the nobodies, the invisible, the forgotten. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to who? The captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set, to, uh, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he's come. The gospel is the great glorious news that we're no longer hopelessly trapped. I, I want to tell you, friends, you're not trapped in this world anymore. Your circumstances are not your destiny. Your story doesn't end in sorrow and pain. Is that great news? He has come to tell us we are no longer hopelessly trapped in a world where sin and misery is our destiny. God has seen our misery and disrupted it with mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's what you and I need to see this morning. So let me tell you about these two women and their joy. Why are they so excited? What is it that the Holy Spirit does and reveals in them and to them that gives them great joy? Here's what you need to see in this text of Scripture regarding Elizabeth. Elizabeth, she rejoices over a few things, but dominantly what Elizabeth's joy is, is that this child is the Lord. The Lord of all. That's what's going on here. This is what Elizabeth responds with. So listen to Luke chapter 1 where Mary comes. She makes the trip down. Um, Tom Schreiner says it's probably 80 to 100 miles. Would have taken her three or four days to get there. And when she comes, we're told in verse 41, when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary... The baby leaped in her womb. We can do a whole sermon on, uh, a sermon on the sanctity of life here. 
right? If you don't think that before a person's born, they're a person, then you've got to read this text. You don't believe the Holy Spirit can be put on a child before they're born. That's what happens here. <laughs> John the Baptist is John the Baptist, an instrument in the hands of God, in the womb. Isn't that great? I mean, the precious value of life. Blessed are you among women, she explains. Uh, it says, Mary, sorry, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of what? Of who? My Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Wow. There is joy all over the place here. There is sung joy and there is internal joy. There is infant joy and there is adult joy. There is young woman joy and old woman joy. There is a lot of joy in this. There is human joy and there is divine joy in this passage of Scripture. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so here is what's going on in this passage of Scripture. Elizabeth looks at Mary and says, you believed. And again, it's important for us to see, and Mary will pick up on this, because what we've done historically is tried to make Mary exceptional rather than God and Christ exceptional. And what you and I need to see is Mary doesn't point at all to herself, but rather she believes the message of God who spoke to her. It is by faith she is saved, right? It is, it is her faith that is commended here. She's not looking at herself as a righteous one, she's looking to the one who is coming who is righteous. And she's commended for that. Tabidi Anyabule says, it is customary for us to think that the first person to confess Jesus is the Christ is Peter. And who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he says, Tabidi says, actually the first person to make this confession is the older woman, Elizabeth, who confesses Jesus is Lord even before he is born. How is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Schreiner, Tom Schreiner, says it's difficult to know exactly what Mary understood at this time, uh, what she meant by these words, but we can understand that she is speaking prophetically by the Holy Spirit. And in the framework of Luke-Acts, Jesus' lordship indicates that he's fully divine. As Acts 10.36 states, he is Lord over all. So here's how you and I are meant to read this text. We hear Mary say, how is it that the mother of my Lord is coming? And she's identifying the Lord. And you'll see right away, what does Mary say? My soul, my soul magnifies the Lord my... They're in agreement. Now they may not grasp fully what's going on here, but Luke, having written carefully the story and the account of the testimonies of what went on, I think he talked to Mary, to tell you the truth. Many of you think that. He heard the testimony of what happened here and he writes down this account. Luke knows fully what who this is at this time. 
And in Luke and Acts, one of the dominant themes of Luke and Acts is He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. When the disciples, apostles in the book of Acts begin to preach the gospel, they say, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead and proclaimed Him or made Him Lord. Right? But you and I need to see something else here. Even, though, even before Luke knew what was going on, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit knew what was going on. And one of, the, one of the powerful things about this text of Scripture is that in this text of Scripture, we actually have a glorious event where within the Trinity, the joy overflows. So, so just imagine what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is so excited, because <laughs> it's the joy of the Holy Spirit, about what the Father has done in sending His Son to earth that the Holy Spirit makes John the Baptist leap with joy in the womb and Elizabeth explain. It doesn't say Elizabeth did this because she did the math, figured out what was going on, got a newsletter. It says the Holy Spirit fills her. What we actually have is the Holy Spirit flipping out with joy because God the Father has sent His Son in the world to redeem humanity. (laughs) Isn't that great? Here we have the triune God going, we're going to rescue these people and the Holy Spirit moving in anonymous people and saying, this is the Lord. This is the Lord. Do you understand what's going on? It's not a little thing. This is the event of history. And the Holy Spirit marvels and rejoices in this. So it is in Scripture all the time the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus Christ and who He is to us. Again, to quote Tabidi, he says, how did she know this? Jesus is Lord is the earliest of Christian confessions. Paul tells us that no one can truly call Jesus Lord unless the Holy Spirit gives them that ability. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Paul writes, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what's going on here. That's what we're seeing here. So Elizabeth's joy is John the Baptist's joy, which is actually the Holy Spirit's joy over the birth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit rejoices because he knows that God the Son, Lord of all, has rescued, uh, has entered the world to rescue and redeem it. Or to put it another way, the excitement here is Aslan is on the move. You got it? This is what we've been waiting for. The heavens have been pierced. God has entered into human reality. And this is the testimony that we have. And so you and I need to stop and realize that as we hear this news, there is not much you'll ever encounter in your life. There's probably nothing you'll encounter more in your life of significance than the knowledge that God entered the world in human flesh. Listen to J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, in the section on the Incarnation. Packer writes, Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. 
He doesn't mean imaginary. What he means is amazing. And all the way through Luke's writing, the word amazing comes up. This is amazing. He writes, The Christmas message rests on the staggering fact that the child in the manger was God. That's what they're arguing. That's what's being revealed here. This is not... This is a Lord. This is a God as the Jehovah Witnesses want you to believe. This is a declaration. He is the Lord of all. Packer writes, The crucial significance at the cradle of Bethlehem lies in the place in the sequence of steps down that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. We do not understand it until we see it in context. In other words, the angels are amazed because they realize that He became humble in order that He might die on a cross. God has come to redeem us. Aren't you glad for that? That helps us understand Mary's response and her joy. And... uh, Kevin read from 1 Peter, and we didn't talk, but I do have that in my notes (laughs) this morning, because as Mary hears of a God who humbles himself, she, she sees all of life in light of that truth. All of life. This is how God is. This is who our God is. This is a God like no other gods. All the gods of the Greeks and the Romans flex their muscles, are filled with egotistical, self-centered narcissism. All the gods of the, of the, of the peoples are coming in and making others bow to them and capitulate to them. Who has heard of a God like our God? Isaiah 64, who works on behalf of those who wait for Him. Who has heard of a God like this God? And Mary is blown away by the humility of God and she announces this God is on the side of the humble. He'll bring down the proud and He'll raise up the humble. And as she sings in the Spirit, of the saturated scriptural truth, everything she's learned as a young teenage girl, all the scriptures have told her this is how God, He comes to the broken, He reaches out to the repentant, He he comes to those who are nobodies and nothings, and He brings down the proud and the arrogant. That's how the Old Testament reads. And that's how He works. Isn't that good news? It's humbling. Rejoice with trembling. As we already saw today. So what is Mary's joy? Mary's joy is that the Lord of all is a merciful Savior. He's a merciful Savior. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary needed a Savior. God who delivers God, my Savior, has come into time and history. And she rejoices in this. And so for Mary, she is caught up. And she'll say this a couple times. Look at Luke chapter 1, 
down verse 50 as she begins to sing about God she says his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation this is the mercy of God and it doesn't matter if you were born in the first century or if you're born in the 21st century it doesn't matter whether you had all the social media oppression and all the fake news or whatever you call it that's oppressing you it does not matter in that because there's mercy in that culture just like there was mercy in her culture there isn't a generation since Christ has come who cannot find mercy in God aren't you glad for that and so you and I need to see this because what Mary does in her song as she quotes Scripture is she reminds us that God's mercy is because of God's nature, not because of our worthiness. And that's really important to understand. Really important to understand because people want to say Mary had Jesus, gave birth to the Son of God because she had no sin. She starts out right off the bat, I worship God my Savior. And she points, she points to the character and the work and the name of God. Never points to herself as worthy. And so here are three things in this text. The Lord's mercy is driven by what? His incredible compassion. The Lord's mercy is consistent with His holy character not ours and the lord's mercy is an expression of his covenant faithfulness not our covenant faithfulness the history of israel is not covenant faithfulness got that through this whole song she says my soul my soul magnifies who the lord and rejoices in who God, my Savior. She's not looking at the mirror and saying, I told you you were somebody special. I knew it. Sitting back here, she had no hope except the promise of God in His Word. And that God is a faithful, merciful God. So let me just show you these things quickly this morning. The Lord's mercy is driven by His incredible compassion towards our misery. Listen to how the song goes. The, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked at what? Is she boasting? The God who humbles Himself looks for the humble. He, he has looked on the humble state of his servant. Now, I want to point out something to you because I think we just look at it and think about humility. But in the Bible, often in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the LXX, the word that's used here is used in the Old Testament, this humble estate, to talk about more than humility, but misery that attends humility. So the Greek word, uh, topinus, topinen here, to pinosin, sorry. Listen to it. It says the, the same word is used of Hannah's affliction when she had no children. And, and uh, just you can do this on your side. There are huge parallels between Mary's song here and Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And so she's not writing her own music, so to say. She has the Psalms. She'll quote the Psalms. She has Hannah's song. She's going backwards and she's singing the songs that, her, that she's been raised on. And they're coming back to her and the pieces are falling into place here. But as she 
does this, this word is used of Hannah. It's used uh, also of um, Leah in the Old Testament. And it's used of Hagar. So let me read to this passage of Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10 to 11. It says about Hannah, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So that'll give you some description of her humble estate. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will look on the tepinosin, the humble estate, the, the misery, the affliction of your servant, and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to, you, uh, give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord. So Han- Hannah prays and gets Samuel. But as she prays, she says, look upon my humble estate, which is the, my miserable, afflicted estate. I don't know much about Mary, but I believe when I read through these texts of Scripture, Mary living as a nobody in poverty, I mean, when she travels to Bethlehem, they have no place to stay. When they offer their offerings, she offers that of the poor. She's living in the Middle East. It's a hard life. And she quotes these texts which give reference to the misery of the poor and the humble and the broken. Leah uses the same word when, when, uh, when Jacob loves Rachel more than her. And it says in Genesis 29:31, when the Lord saw, I love this, this is important, in both phrases, in these phrases, it's the same phrase that Mary uses because it says, he has looked on. And so Leah says, it says, when the Lord saw, when he looked on and saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her womb. But Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Reuben. She said, why? Because the Lord has looked upon my humble estate, my affliction. Hagar, when she is persecuted by Sarah and, and flees, God comes and rescues her and tells her to go back, and she'll have a son. And it says in Genesis 16, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, El Roy, the God who what? God sees. You prayed that this morning. Lord, you see. Isn't that good news, folks? You see, here's, here's, here's what Mary is rejoicing in, that the Lord sees a nobody in their affliction when nobody else sees. The Lord is moved by our brokenness and our oppression. And here's one of the lies, young person, this is the lie that the enemy wants you to think, that no one cares and no one sees. That's not our God. You need to hear this today. The Lord knows and He is not indifferent. How do you know He's not indifferent? That He would not even spare His own Son, but would give Him up for us all, even though He looks upon our brokenness and our unworthiness. And even if you're here today and you're saying, I'm in the mess I'm in because I've done sinful things. My dear friends, as you listen to Mary sing, and she starts quoting the Old Testament, God even sees our misery when we've made the mess. And He sends His Son for us. That's good news. And I I don't want to assume it's just young people. It could be one of our most senior saints believe that God doesn't see. And the Bible argues against that profoundly. 
the Lord beholds our affliction. His mercy on our, is incredible because he sees our misery. It's also, this is important, it also flows out of his holy character and not ours. Look at how she sings. Verse 48, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because of what I've done? Because of who I am? No. For he who is mighty has what? Done great things for me. And what's his name? Holy is his name. Why does she say that? What's the word holy mean? Separate. There's no God like him. Here, there's no God who's like our God. Holy is his name. That's exactly, that's exactly the same phrase Hannah says in her song. This is a God who comes in and rescues nobodies and delivers invisible people and cares about their, war, their brokenness and their tears and their sorrows and he lifts them up and he, and he rescues them and he brings down the arrogant and the proud. They both sing of that. She says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He is mighty and done great things. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their heart, the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted them, those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And that echoes all the way through the Gospel of Luke. The nobodies, the rejected, the oppressed, right? The prostitutes that fall at the feet of Jesus. The man who can't look up to Jesus. But he beats his breast and says, have mercy. Have what? Have mercy on me, a sinner, looks up to God. That man goes away justified. The guy who sits there and says, thank you, God, I'm not like these people. Thank you, God, for that. Does not go away justified. You see, God's mercy is consistent with his holy character and not ours. And so here's what I want you to see. God's nature is to be moved and responsive to humility, and it is to be strongly opposed to the proud. So let me, let me um, give you anybody, our fighter verse for this week. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 6. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Right? Not because of right, any righteousness deeds that we had done, but according to His mercy. mercy. He did it through His mercy. And so here's the great news is that God comes in not because of anything in us, but he comes in because of his great mercy towards us. So here's, here's what I want you to think this morning, folks. Why is God compassionate? Why does God show mercy towards sinners? Because God is merciful. It's his nature. He's holy. He's not like any other God. He's not like you and me. How many of us are like the older brother? who look and say, why don't they get their life together? Kevin prayed that this morning. Kevin said, you may have come here this morning and said, what's the matter with these people? Why don't they get their act? Isn't it good news? You can humble yourself, confess your pride, and come to him and he forgets because God is not like us, praise God. It's God's character. It's God's mercy that we see here. And ultimately, 
as, as we get to the end of it, it's not only God's mercy and God's character, but it's his covenant faithfulness. Look down at the end of verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Tom Schreiner says, What God has done for Mary is not for her alone, but also for Israel as a whole, signifying a new exodus, a new redemption is taking place through Jesus. What, he, what he's saying here is when, when Mary sings, she realizes what's going on here is God is keeping all the promises he's made to the fathers through the ages. He's a covenant keeper. He said he would forgive sinners. He said he would send his Savior. He said he would send the Son of David. He said there was a new day dawning. He said there would be a, a, a new garden that would be established, that would be where righteousness would reign. He has said that the Son would come and rule with equity over all things. He said it. He promised that the nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And guess what he's doing? He is doing that. That's what Mary sings. It's not because Mary's great. It's because God's great. It's not because Mary's a covenant keeper. It's because God's a covenant keeper. He's merciful. And so, I do want to say to you this morning that we're about to take communion and the argument of communion is that God's a covenant keeper. Nobody takes communion this morning because you are faithful. Right? The whole act of taking communion this morning is that there is a new what? Covenant in His blood. So you may have come in this morning and thinking, God wouldn't look on a sinner like me because of the greatness and the darkness of my sin. That's why he sent his son into the world. Right? It's because of his great mercy. You might have been here and saying, my character has been arrogant or proud or my character has been cynical or distant or I've, I've thumbed my nose at God. I've been gone too long and all that. Stop, stop, stop. He is holy. He's not like us. He's not a God who negotiates and bargains. You didn't have to do this last week right to take communion. You need to come in His name, not in your name. In His performance, not your performance. In His finished work on the cross, not anything you or I have done. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Isn't that good news? You can come in today and plead the blood of Jesus. Are you ready to do that? I want you to do that today. He sees you. He sees you. He cares and is committed to you. He is faithful to you because He has to be faithful to His Son who died for you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.